You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. This morning we're looking together at chapter 8 and reading verses 1 through 8. You'll find this in the Pew Bible on page 916. Acts chapter 8, and we'll be reading together verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Luke has been telling the story of the work of the ascended Jesus that he continued to do. And like a good mystery writer, he weaves together various strands of the story And he helps us to understand how the Lord was working in the early church. The Spirit of Christ was attending the Word with power to convert sinners and to comfort believers. That's a nice, succinct way to sum it up. And the basic theme is the progress of the kingdom through the gospel. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is the difference between the beginning and the end. Because the text begins with the spite and the malice and the agony of persecution. But notice how it ends with the restoration and rejoicing associated with salvation. So in verse 1, Saul approves of Stephen's murder and persecution breaks out. In verse 8, the Samaritans hear the gospel and there's much joy in that city. So something significant happened to go from mourning to dancing. And that something was the preaching of Christ. The spread of the gospel. The text illustrates the beauty and the genius and the joy of the Christian faith because God was able to bring about great joy in the midst of severe tribulation. So first we're told that there arose this great persecution against the church. And Saul, or as we know him, Paul, himself approved of Stephen's execution because he was a faithful Pharisee. And as a result of the oppression, the Christians were scattered throughout the area. 
It was in fulfillment of Christ's prediction, if you remember, at the beginning of Acts. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the kingdom is advancing just like he said. No surprise. And some courageous Christians, devout men, buried Stephen, though this was forbidden by the Mosaic law, or at least the way they interpret it. He was considered a criminal, and the law barred a proper burial for him, but these men were willing to risk their freedoms and their lives to bury this godly saint. And in the meantime, Saul becomes more zealous in opposing the Christian faith, and at the end of last chapter, it described him as a bystander. At the beginning of this chapter, it says he's in hearty agreement with it, and then in verse 3, We're told that he's ravaging the church. He's dragging believers to prison. So within the space of six verses, he goes from spectator to the worst enemy of the church. His zeal for Judaism and his hatred of Christ was so intense that he hunted them down. Like the German Gestapo, he would enter the homes to imprison believers. And no one was exempt, notice. He pursued women as well as men. Gone was the crowd's favor. It had been replaced by this fierce opposition. And Stephen's death was simply a catalyst that fostered this full-scale attack. Not only the Jewish leaders, but the people turned against the church. And all the Christians, think of that, all the believers in Jerusalem, except the apostles, were forced to flee. The apostles remained, I believe, to help establish and train the church. Somebody had to do it. And it was a very difficult time for those early believers. Very dangerous. They were constantly watched, always scrutinized, stalked like animals. Many of them lost their jobs, were banned from the marketplace, expelled from the synagogues. They were shunned by fellow Jews and often by their own families. And they were driven away from everything that was familiar to them. Think of that. They had to abandon their houses and their possessions, their livelihoods, and even their relationships. That was the price that they were willing to pay for following Jesus. The apostle says in Hebrews 10, After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Can you imagine being uprooted, destitute, scattered from home? Where would they go? How would they live? Where could they find help? I think it gives a whole new perspective on the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, right? More than ever, they realized at this point that Christ was their portion and their strength. They had to rely upon him. As it says in Psalm 44, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And as the Christians were dispersed, the early church continued to grow, surprisingly. 
The kingdom was advancing through Judea and Samaria, and it shows that God allows persecution sometimes so that the knowledge of God can spread. There were strangers from God whom he wanted to make his friends. And it's just another illustration, I think, of how the Lord can bring good from evil. He scatters his enemies like smoke, but he scatters his believers like seed. That's what happens. The one is driven away from his sight, but the other bears spiritual fruit. The very thing his enemies think will destroy the church, he uses to build it up. It's one of those ironic reversals that we find so frequently mentioned with regard to redemption. It's an ironic reversal. Psalm 76, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. So while the passage begins with persecution, notice how it concludes with joy. The Christians are chased out of Jerusalem, they're dispersed, they go about evangelizing and preaching the word. And everybody they meet, they share the word of God with them. Christians are like dandelion seeds whisked by the winds of persecution, and wherever they land, they share the word of God with others. And in their efforts to hinder the gospel, the forces of evil, evil actually spread it. Crowds of people are converted, many of them healed, and Christ is honored. And Luke records for us the evangelistic enterprise of Philip, Philip the deacon. He was one of the seven spirit-filled men, you'll remember, that were ordained to the diaconate. And the Spirit enables this man to perform signs that confirm the message. Even the demons have to obey. And crowds of Samaritans are paying attention to what he's saying. And according to Luke, specifically, he's proclaiming to them the Christ. Isn't that an interesting way to describe it? He doesn't say he's preaching the word. He doesn't say he's spreading the gospel. He doesn't even say he's telling him the truth. He says Philip was proclaiming the Christ. Jesus is the focus. And as a result, God's kingdom is advanced and much joy was in the city. It was the word of Christ. It was about Christ. It was from Christ. Jesus fulfills all the promises. He's the focal point. He's the savior of the world and the only mediator between God and men. And I'm convinced that Philip was showing them how the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. He's the promised seed of the woman. He is Abraham's messianic offspring. He's the prophet like unto Moses and the royal descendant of David. And most likely he told them that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. The final revelation. Later, later Philip would expound Isaiah 53 for that Ethiopian eunuch, remember? He heard the word of Christ, he was baptized, and it says he went on his way rejoicing. Because Christ is the key to understanding all the scriptures. The Jewish authorities, I think, viewed scriptures simply as a rule book. Do this, don't do that. 
Philip understood that every page of the Bible points to Christ. He's the central figure. And salvation in him is the central plot. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in his person and work. He's the key to understanding the whole. He's the sum of all of its parts. Remember when he was talking to the Jews? At one point he says to them, you search the scriptures and it's they that bear witness about me. So Philip's preaching was Christ-centered, and the fruit of that was joy. He preached Jesus among the half-breed Samaritans who were despised by the Jews. A mixed race, half-Jewish, half-Gentile, because they had intermarried with the Assyrian conquerors. And the Jews hated them. They would have nothing to do with them. But here was Philip, and he's proclaiming the Christ to them, and many of them are being saved. Because you see, in God's kingdom, there are no half-breeds, and there is no prejudice. All are accepted, and there is salvation for everyone. So there was much joy in that city. And doesn't this demonstrate how the very knowledge of Christ breeds joy? You know, one reason for so little joy in our day is that there is so little knowledge of Christ. If you look at the Pew Research, you'll find that only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview, while 87% of Americans have a Bible, at least one. 6%. American Christianity has been described as an inch deep and a mile wide. I'm sure you've heard that before. And Satan has the advantage with those who own but who rarely read their Bibles. Theirs is a nominal, external, and as a result, joyless religion that has no power. The rejoicing in Samaria was the fruit of hearing the Christ proclaimed. If somebody believes in Christ and embraces the gospel and becomes a disciple, do you know what happens? Joy. It was said of the Philippian jailer that he rejoiced that he had believed in God. Just moments before that, he had been in the pit of despair, ready to take his own life. But when he met Jesus, he, along with his entire family, was filled with great joy. And the world thinks that our religion is about keeping rules and avoiding anything that's fun. That's Christianity to the unbelieving world. But the truth is that people never rejoice more than when they serve the living God. Even in this life, we can enjoy many foretastes of the life of God in the kingdom. Paul says this, we know, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. How foolish is it to think that all joy is somehow squelched by serving Christ? 
Our future is secure. One of those things of which the kingdom consists, we're told, is joy in the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. When the prodigal returned to the father, it says they began to celebrate joy. The devil lies when he tries to convince us that Christianity is joyless and burdensome. Zacchaeus received Christ joyfully because he brought salvation to his house. The man who found the true treasure in his joy sold everything he had to buy that field. The Samaritans rejoiced with great joy when Philip proclaimed to them the Christ. And in God's word, we read of all the benefits of living in the world to come. You know what it is, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even imagine what it's going to be like. It's so great. Nothing in this life can compare. So I think there's three things to learn from this. One is that we ought to rely upon the word. Sinful pride will rely upon the foolish wisdom and the limited strength and the insufficient resources of mankind. We are tempted to trust in man and to make flesh our strength and to turn away from the Lord. And those who feel secure in themselves are easily led astray by their own wisdom. But the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding because there is nothing in ourselves or in others that is worth relying upon. As a sinful creature, I am unreliable. My understanding is often dark. Jeremiah tells us that the human heart is deceitful and desperately sick. So if we're going to be wise unto salvation, we have to rely upon the word of Christ. The Samaritans were filled with gladness as they received the news about Jesus. And Philip and the others didn't despair when they were driven from their families, but they preached Christ. And the word of Christ sustained them. That's why the elder read Psalm 19 earlier. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart. So one of the chief characteristics of a true believer is reliance upon the word. Not upon experiences, not upon emotions, not upon anything else, the word. It's there that you and I learn of God's promises and his providence and the provision of a savior, that he's a just and avenging God, rightly to be feared, but also filled with mercy. And by dying on that cross, Jesus obtained for us access to his father's throne. A father who is a friend and a counselor. The story is told, it's an old story, but it's told of Oliver Cromwell's secretary who was dispatched to the continent on some important business. And on the first night, he stayed at a seaport town and was unable to sleep, tossing back and forth. You've had nights like that, as I have too. 
And according to custom, a servant slept in the secretary's room. And on this particular occasion, the servant himself was sleeping soundly. The secretary at length wakened the man who responded by asking how it was that his master could not rest. And the secretary said, I'm so afraid that something will go wrong with our mission. Master, said the servant, did God rule the world before we were born? Most assuredly, he did. And will he rule it after we are dead, said the servant. Certainly he will, came the response. Then, Master, why not let him rule the present as well? And of course, as the story is told, the secretary's faith was stirred and his heart was calmed, and in a few minutes, both of them were sleeping. The truth of God's sovereignty and his goodness is a source of rich comfort, and we learn that from his word. We rely upon the word. But then secondly, this implies that God's children should hunger for the word. Philip's preaching, you'll notice, was eagerly received by the Samaritan people. They were teachable. That's a rare commodity in our day, teachability. What had been meat and drink in Jerusalem was now becoming meat and drink in Samaria. And having heard the word of Christ, these Samaritans hungered for more. And it illustrates how the Spirit creates the spiritual hunger and thirst in believers. Peter says, like newborn infants, many infants here, for which I'm thankful, they long for the pure milk, right? Well, like newborn infants, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk that we by it may grow up into salvation. That's a characteristic of every sincere Christian. Spiritual appetite. What does the doctor say when you're checked on? How's your appetite? You eating okay? You drinking enough? It's an important vital sign of life. Do we have an appetite for the word? King David said this, my soul thirsts for God. You see, everything God made has a propensity to reach its goal and a longing to be satisfied. Let me give you an example. The propensity of fire is to leap upward. The propensity of cold air is to find the bottom. We know that. Plants grow toward the sun because they have a propensity to produce flowers. Animals have an inborn propensity to satisfy their appetites. Human beings are created with deep longings and inward desires. And those who try to satisfy with the things of this world are bitterly disappointed. He has made everything beautiful in its time and he's put eternity into man's heart. We will never be fully and finally satisfied by anything in this world. We were created for God will be fully satisfied by fellowship with him. And that means we find him in his word. Augustine put it this way, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
And this kind of fellowship with God is only facilitated through Christ by the word. There is no other fountain from which to drink. Like newborn infants long for the word. The wicked of this world hunger for sin. And we're told in the Old Testament that they drink iniquity like water. The more refined of sinners hunger for things of this earth, but they're worldly. But the Christian, by God's grace, hungers for Christ, whom he finds in God's word. You see what I'm saying? The Holy Scriptures are the only means to obtain what your soul craves. It's your only source of spiritual supply. It's where we learn about Jesus. And the spiritual appetite can be whetted by preaching and teaching. This is why we position ourselves in worship. Our appetites are whetted. And the health of the soul depends on its spiritual diet. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's your comfort under trial. It's your strength for duty. It's the provision for daily life. It's a veritable feast for the soul. Let me illustrate one more time. Bear with me with another story. I hope I say this right. Sadhu Sundak Singh was distributing gospels in the central province of India. He was riding on a train when he came to some non-Christians, and he offered a man a copy of John's gospel. The man took it. He angrily tore it into pieces and threw the pieces out the window. That seemed to be the end of it. But it so happened that in the providence of God, there was a man anxiously seeking truth walking along the tracks that very day. And as he walked along, he picked up this little bit of paper, and as he looked at it, he read these words in his own language. The bread of life. That's all it said. The bread of life. He had no idea what it meant, so he asked his friends, and one of them said, I can tell you, it's out of the Christian book. You must not read it, or you'll be defiled. But this man thought for a moment, and he said, I want to read the book that contains that beautiful phrase, the bread of life. So he bought a copy of the New Testament, and was directed to the passage containing that phrase, the one where the Lord Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And this man was delighted as he studied the gospel of John. Light flooded his heart, and he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the epilogue, he became a preacher of the gospel. That little piece of paper was used by the Spirit of God and Jesus became the bread of life to him. Hunger for the word. Finally, confidence in the word. It's not just relying upon it. It's not just hungering for it, but it's confidence in it. Because we should exude confidence in God's word. You'll notice that in Samaria, Philip didn't rely upon gimmicks or marketing or new techniques. He simply preached the Christ. It was the plain, simple proclamation of God's word. And that's the ordinary means by which God's spirit converts sinners. P. 
Peter says, you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Those early Christians had confidence in it. Do we? They went about preaching. Whether from the pulpit or the lectern or over a cup of coffee, they had confidence in the word. And it will be a fragrance of death to some and an aroma of life to others. Either way, we can have confidence that God's purpose will be achieved. This is what he says in Isaiah 55. My word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. All kinds of new things are being invented today. Exciting methods, we're told, that are designed to produce immediate results, fill the pews. But novelties in worship and evangelism betray a lack of trust in God's wisdom. He appointed his word to draw sinners to Christ. And failure to use it betrays a lack of confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It seems weak, it seems foolish for a man, a sinner himself, to stand in front of a group of people and proclaim this word. But Paul says unambiguously, it is the power of God unto salvation. It's God's chosen method. And the question is, do we have confidence in God's word? I have one more story to illustrate. A lot of stories this morning. John Whitecross, and perhaps I've mentioned this before in Sunday school or something, but John Whitecross tells the story of a very wicked and immoral young man who one day just happened to stroll into a church where they were reading the fifth chapter of Genesis. Now, if you remember, the fifth chapter of Genesis is a genealogy. He lived 100 years, had kids, he died. He lived 900 years, had kids, he died. So that's Genesis 5. He comes into this church. They're reading Genesis 5. Who would think that the mere reading of a scriptural genealogy would be instrumental in the production of spiritual fruit? Not me. But in the hands of the Holy Spirit, it can do wonders. This young man kept hearing that such and such a person lived for so long, and yet in each case, the conclusion was the same. He died. The days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. The days of Enosh were 905 days, years, and he died. The days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And the constant repetition of the words, and he died, even after the incredible number of years that they lived, struck him so deeply with the thought of death and eternity that by God's grace he was converted and soon after he became a Christian. You know, we may not be slick, hip, or amusing, but by God's grace we have the word. Okay, I might be hip, but we have the word. (laughs) We can be confident that he'll keep his promise and he will bless us. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.